Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio Acts chapter 19 verses 21 through 41. Our context is this, Paul is on his third journey. He's stuck here for a while in Ephesus. He stayed there for two years and three months. In our previous audio in verses 1 through 20 in Acts chapter 19, we learned some of the goings on in Ephesus. For example, the casting out of the demons by the seven sons of Sceva in the name of Paul, and then the demons came and attacked him because they weren't really Christians. The burning of 50,000 drachmas worth of magic books and sorcerer's books. And Paul doing extraordinary miracles when people touched faith's cloths or work aprons that had been touched by Paul. So that's our context. So we begin now in Acts 19, verse 21. We read this. When these events were over, what events? The events I just told you about. The extraordinary miracles, the casting out, the demons attacking the the Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva, the burning of the 50,000 drachmas worth of magic books. When all those events were over, Paul resolved in the Spirit, that's because that's what Paul did, he, he was led by the Holy Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, I must go see Rome as well. Now, when, when it says when these events were over, that would cover all the two years and three months that were in Ephesus. It's time for him to leave. And a good application here is just because you're successful. Paul was very successful in Ephesus, obviously. But that doesn't mean you're supposed to stay there forever. Sometimes you're supposed to move on. The Holy Spirit, Paul resolved in the Spirit. We have to always be led by the Holy Spirit, not by past successes, not by camping on our past successes. So Paul resolved to go through Macedonia, and of course that would refer to the three churches. He started there, the church at Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Berea. And then he wanted to go over to Achaia, which again was the Roman name of the province that covered Greece, and which of course contained the city of Corinth, which is the most important city, so that's probably where he was planning to go, was to Corinth. Now, there is a very complicated and controverted interaction between Paul's plans to go to Corinth, and his actual journey to Corinth, and his letters to the Corinthians. I'm going to save that till I get to my study of First and Second Corinthians. We'll save that for now. But just for right now, this is what Paul did on his third journey. I'll give you a preview. He left Ephesus. He went north up to Troas. He crossed the Hellespont, went through Thrace, and then to Macedonia, which is Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, and then on down to Corinth. And then he, he was going to go. He was going to go back to Jerusalem by sea. There was some conspiracy against him so he went back through those same churches again that's the church of Berea the churches of Berea Thessalonica and Philippi went back to Troas went that back which is across the hell spot there in Asia right where the ancient city of Troy was then he sails south he skips Ephesus goes to Miletus which is the famous port city of Ephesus he sees the Ephesian elders there then he gets on the ship goes back Lands in Tyre on the, on the Phoenician coast there, north of Israel, and then he decides to go down to Jerusalem where he went and got arrested and got sent to Rome. So, after all of his journeys, he did see Rome. He wasn't planning to go as a prisoner of the state, but he was planning to go there voluntarily. But, you know, your plans, you make plans. They don't always come out the way you think they're going to be, even if you're an apostle. But he ended up getting to see Rome just as he was planning to. Speaking of plans... Even the plans of apostles are subject to veto by God. And even though our plans don't always materialize, we still need to make plans. There seems to be a 
prejudice in the human race in general is against planning. Oh, no, we can't plan because they never work out. I remember I was teaching management, and one of the key four functions of management is planning, and, and most executives and most managers don't like to do it to do it. And the textbook says, no, you need to do it even though the plans don't ever materialize the way you think they're going to materialize. And that really is true. You have to plan. Even apostles led by the Holy Spirit had to make plans. Now, of course, their plans were subject to circumstances which God controls and, and so forth. But you still got to plan. Why did Paul want to pass through the churches in Macedonia, the churches at Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea? Because he wanted to strengthen them. And also, he wanted to make collections for the poor saints in Jerusalem. We learned this from the Gospels, I think, in the Corinthian letters. But that was on his mind there. He wanted to collect money to take back to the saints at Jerusalem. I think there was a famine going on at the time. Paul also mentions in this verse that he wanted to see Rome as well. Why would he want to go to Rome? He never started a church there, but maybe he wanted to strengthen the church there, even though he didn't start it. He, he, of course, Paul never trenched on other people's foundations, other apostles. But that doesn't mean you can't go strengthen another, a, a church that another person has started. That would be foolish. We'd never have visiting speakers anywhere. Rome was the capital of the world. It was a strategic place for preaching the gospel. Of course, Paul always went for the strategic centers. Ephesus was a strategic center. Even Pisidian Antioch was a trade route. Antioch of Syria was the third important city in Rome. So, Paul, that makes sense that Paul would want to go there. We go to Acts 19, verse 22. So, after sending two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, Timothy apparently accompanied Paul a lot. Remember, Paul picked him up on the second journey in Lystra, and he went all the way, all the way at least to Philippi, and then kind of, we lose track of him a little bit. And then he showed Silas and Timothy show up when Paul was alone in Athens, and then in Corinth, Silas and Timothy show up in Corinth. So he was with him on the second journey. Now we're on the third journey, and he's still with him. Who was Erastus? Well, he was an important figure at Corinth, according to the NIV Study Bible. He once was an he once was the city of Corinth's city director of public works, according to the NIA study Bible. Now, this is controverted. Of course, these names are mentioned like this. Some people say, no, nah, what's the city director of public works going to be going on a mission journey before? Well, he could have quit his job, for all I know. But at any rate, the NIV study Bible says this Erastus eventually went to Rome. We read this in Romans 16:23. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. And so Paul was in Corinth when he wrote the letter to Romans, and he mentions Erastus, the city treasurer, there. Now, how Erastus ended up being in Ephesus with Paul, I don't know, but he went back to Corinth with Paul. So Paul used high officials. I guess he, well, the city director of public works in Corinth is, is, is a fairly high administrative official. Now, as I mentioned just a minute ago, Sometimes people will dispute who this Erastus was. For example, John Gill says that a city treasurer is not likely to be traveling all over doing apostolic work. There's a Erastus, a city treasurer in Romans 16:23. He's called the city treasurer, but the NIV Study Bible says that there was an Erastus who was once the city's director of public works. Now, how do they know that? It was because there was a paving stone found in Corinth by archaeologists in which it was stated this paving stone was done by Erastus, commissioner of public works. He bore the expense of this pavement. So we've got Erastus, the 
Commission of Public Works mentioned in archaeology. We have Erastus just mentioned here by name, traveling with Timothy to collect the poor collection for the saints in Jerusalem. And then we have in Romans, Erastus the city treasurer. And he would be in Corinth because Paul wrote Romans from Corinth. So are all these people the same people? The city treasurer, the public works guy? I don't know. It's interesting speculation. Many people say that this kind of detail is what makes Luke such a good historian mentioning all these details. Erastus is also mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.20. Erastus has remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus sick at Miletus. So the theory is that this Erastus, this public treasurer, this city treasurer, this public works commissioner, whoever he was, was one of Paul's traveling companions and fellow apostles. John Gill doesn't like that. He says, no, a city treasurer is not likely to be traveling all over doing apostolic work. To which I say, well, maybe he quit his job. I mean, people have been known to do that before. Now, if this Erastus was current city treasurer, this was a perfect person for Paul to send to collect money for the poor saints in Jerusalem. He was elected in Corinth to oversee city finances, so he was used to handling money, so he would be a proper person to be taking up a poor collection, which Paul was very, very intent on, by the way, collecting this poor collection on the third journey. We see this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, 8 verse 9 and Romans 15, 25 through 26. So after sending off Timothy and Erastus to Macedonia, to those three churches in Macedonia, verse 22 in Acts 19 says that he, Paul himself, stayed in Asia for a while. Of course, that was Ephesus because that's where he was staying in Asia. Asia, remember, is the name of the Roman province on the western end of the Anatolian province. Even as Erastus if he was the treasurer of Corinth, would be a proper person to collect money for the for poor people, for the poor saints in Jerusalem, Timothy would be a proper person to send to Macedonia, as Albert Barnes pointed out, because Timothy had been there with Paul when the churches were established. This is on the second journey. We see this in Acts 16.3 and Acts 17.14. So Timothy would be familiar with the churches there, and so Paul sends him off. We go to verse 23 in Acts chapter 19. During that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. This is right at the end when Paul's getting ready to leave Ephesus, and all of a sudden there's a huge riot. The way, of course, is the name that was used for Christianity by people back then. Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 18, here in Acts chapter 19.23, also back in Acts chapter 19.9, Acts 22.4, Acts 24.14, and 22. So that was a very common name for the church. Unfortunately, some heretical cult has taken the name today called The Way. And uh, we don't use that word anymore. We go to Acts 19.24. For a person named Demetrius, we're going to talk about what's caused this riot now. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. Now, Demetrius was probably the head of a guild a guild that had silversmiths in the guild. There were craftsmen who made silver objects. The objects they were making were little imitations of the famous Temple of Artemis in Ephesus, or as if you use the Roman name, it would be Temple of Diana. So the silversmiths were making these little silver shrines and also images of Diana herself. And they were making a lot of money doing this because Ephesus, the Temple of Diana there in Ephesus, was one of the seven wonders of the world. People came from all over the ancient Near East to see this this tourist attraction, if you will, and these people were making a lot of money. All right, well, who is this Artemis that the temple was made to, the shrine was made to? Artemis is the Greek name for the Roman goddess Diana. She was the goddess of wild animals, the hunt, the goddess of chastity, and the goddess of childbirth. I've always thought that's kind of funny. It's kind of hard to have 
children if you're chased, but that's the way the myth worked. Now, the NIV Study Bible points out something interesting, that the Ephesian Artemis is quite different from the Greco-Roman Artemis. You know, Artemis was famous for protecting her virginity, and so she, she would seem to be not quite all that unchaste, if you will. But pretty soon, there in the east, she started taking on the characteristics of an Asia minor god named Cybele, according to the NIV Study Bible. Now, Cybele was the mother goddess of fertility who was worshipped in Asia Minor. She was Phrygia, that's according to the NIV Study Bible, she was Phrygia's only known goddess, according to Wikipedia. Phrygia, of course, is the region of, of Asia, of Asia Minor there that's a little bit east of east of Ephesus, west of Galatia. Uh, Artemis was served by many prostitute priestesses. That's great. The goddess of chastity has a bunch of prostitutes serving her. The NIV Study Bible says she was many-breasted. Let me give you a quote from John Gill. In some statues, all covered over with breast, from the shoulders down to the feet, in others she is thus represented from the breast to the bottom of the abdomen, the thighs and legs being covered with heads of different animals. So it depends on which kind of statue you get. Some of the statues had breasts from her shoulders all the way down to her feet. Well, that's just a wonderful goddess to be worshipping. The idea is, of course, all those breasts means a lot of children, a lot of fertility. Here's another great quote from John Gill. Uh, the whole body of the deity is covered with paps because the whole universe is nourished by it. Paps. That's the old-fashioned English word for breast. So the whole universe was nourished by Diana. Anyway, it's this typical disgusting idol. Some people claim, this is a speculation, NIV study Bible speculation, that a meteorite may have been the basis of the claim in Ephesus for her heavenly origin. We'll see later on in this chapter in Acts 19, that the Ephesian city official who tried to stop the riot said, hey, we all know that Artemis came from heaven. Yeah, maybe it was a meteorite. Maybe. Reproductions of the original image had been found in Ephesus from the time of Domitian, the Roman Emperor Domitian, 81 to 96 AD. So another interesting fact about the temple to Diana in 356 BC, the very night that Alexander the Great was born, the temple was burned to the ground by a crazy guy named Aristratus. Adam Clark says that Aristratus wanted to procure for himself everlasting fame. And here's what John Gill says about it. Quote, at which the Ephesians were so enraged, the burning of the temple, at which burning of the temple, the Ephesians were so enraged that they got an order published by the Common Council of Asia throughout all the neighboring kingdoms and nations that his name should not be once mentioned which, however, though it might be regarded for a while, was not always, for his name has since been spoken of and transmitted in writing to posterity. In fact, I'm talking about it right now, Aristotle, so they weren't able to, to expunge this man's name from history. That was a big deal, burning down the temple, of, burning down one of the seven wonders of the world. I forgot the story exactly. I remember Alexander the Great, on his travels, on his way to beaten Persia, came through there, I don't know if he came through there or if he just heard about it, but he offered to rebuild the Temple of Diana on one condition, that they would put his name on the front of the temple. But the city of Ephesus refused that. They wanted to, Diana wanted to, he, they wanted to keep Diana to have the, the glory. They did rebuild the temple several times, I think, three times. It was eventually destroyed in 401 A.D. Adam Clark said it later became a Turkish mosque. 
which would have to be after 401 AD. I don't know how it became a Turkish mosque if it was destroyed in 401 AD, as Wikipedia says. Wikipedia further says that only foundations and sculptural fragments of the latest of the temples at the site remain. So there have been a lot of temples down on the site. You can, I can't show you the picture here, but if you get on Wikipedia and look at the picture, you see one column, a couple of rocks scattered around, some stones at the, at the crest of a hill. I was on a tour of Ephesus, and the tour guide there, a Greek woman, archaeologist, was on the uh, leading was sitting at the front of the bus, and I asked her, I said, well, I want to see the Temple of Diana. We had just been through Ephesus. I said, how come we haven't seen the Temple of Diana? She said, oh, it's not there anymore. She said, at one time in the 1800s, the late 1800s, a businessman wanted to buy all the stones there, I think, to reproduce the temple somewhere else, kind of like the people in that city in Arizona that bought one of the London bridges. They thought it was the London Bridge. Turns out there's a bunch of London bridges, and they got rooked. I've seen that London Bridge sitting right in the middle of the desert. Crazy. Well, the same the businessman had the same idea. He wanted to buy the Temple of Diana, so he got a bunch of rocks from the site, had them all packed up. And for some reason, either because he lost interest or lost money, went bankrupt, I don't know, but he never got them. And the tour guide said, nobody goes to see the Temple of Diana anymore. I would have liked to have seen it, but I have to look at the picture on Wikipedia instead. So, the Temple of Diana was a big deal. Visitors came to the site and they brought they bought those little silver shrines the craftsmen were making as memorials of what they had seen. And then they would, Jameson Fawcett Brown says, they would take these silver shrines and put them in houses as a charm to protect the house. And again, of course, the silversmiths were also making images of Artemis also. So we go to verse 25. When he, that's Demetrius, had assembled them, the craftsmen, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, now, there's a little distinction there between the craftsmen, them, and the workers engaged in this type of business. The NIV has related trades. For example, as John Gill says, it could be founders, people who actually pour the silver into molds, engravers who engrave the silver images with inscriptions, polishers, those who polish. I even speculate maybe the people who retail these things in small shops, they might have been upset too because they, they probably bought a bunch of them and sold them to the tourists. So there was a lot of economic interest here at this guild meeting of Demetrius. He, Demetrius, said, quote, Men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. And folks, this is what drives this whole incident. It's not love for Diana. It's not pagan idolatry. It's the old-fashioned love of money. Nothing will get people more upset than the loss of money. For example, those cowardly state legislatures who are threatened to be boycotted because they pass pro-life or anti-homosexual type legislation. And then all the virtue signaling corporations say, oh, we will not put our next plan in your state because you're such bigots, because you're such homophobes and so forth. Well, that's the way people are. They're much more worried about money than they are about God or sexual morality or anything related to God. We go to Acts 19, verse 26. Demetrius continues, you both see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man Paul has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Well, one thing we can say about Demetrius, he quoted Paul right. Paul was saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Hey, he got him exactly right on that. And notice that this message of Paul had not only spread through Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. Now, Asia, of course, is the western end of the Anatolian province and include the old Greek provinces of Lydia 
in the central area there, Caria in the south, Mizzy and Troas in the northwest, all the way out to maybe uh, Pisidia in that kind of in that area. So we've already noted in the previous audio, I think, that Ephesus was a very key place, and it would send out missionaries, and it started three churches there in the Asian province, right down the Meander River, where the Lycus River intersects the Meander River. We have Hierapolis, Laodicea, Colossae started by Ephesus. We have missionaries going out for Ephesus. So yeah, Paul had misled a considerable number of people, quote-unquote misled them, according to Demetrius. Paul told the Corinthians, hey, I've got a wide open door for ministry in Ephesus. I don't have the site in front of me right now, but I remember Paul told the Corinthians that. And so Demetrius is pointing out that, hey, not only is he screwing up our business in Ephesus, he's going to be screwing up all of our idolatry business all over Asia. We now move to verse 27. Demetrius continues, Acts 19, verse 27. So not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. The very one all of Asia and the world adore. So Demetrius goes from their local business being discredited to the great and mighty Diana of the Ephesians whose paps feed the whole universe. Now, that sounds real pious and religious, does it not, for a pagan? But like I say, no, no, no. He was worried about his money because when Diana gets despised, all their money, all their income goes to to, to zilch. As John Gill points out, Demetrius was stirring up piety for his own selfish motives, and I think that Gill is exactly right. Now, interestingly enough, Demetrius says that, hey, the temple of Artemis, of the great goddess Artemis herself may be despised, and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. Well, guess what? She's ruined now. Nobody, nobody, nobody worships Diana anymore, but there's over a billion Christians in the world. So, Demetrius back the wrong horse in that situation. Verse 28 of Acts 19, when they had heard us, that's the craftsmen and the related tradesmen who heard Demetrius' speech, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They loved Artemis. I mean, they loved her so much that when Alexander the Great offered to rebuild the temple, as I previously mentioned, he wanted his name on the front. They said, "Uh uh-uh, no, no, we have too much respect for Artemis to put your name Alexander on the front. So they started, yeah. so anyway, the silversmith, Demetrius and the silversmith, Demetrius succeeded in stirring up religious piety to get the crowd all upset, in addition to his particular financial interest. Now he's got people upset because of idolatrous religious reasons. We go to verse 29. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. Now, that amphitheater is still there. I've walked by it, and it's huge. I remember the thing that, I struck, that struck me about it was that it was black. You know, usually these Greek amphitheaters are gray in stones, but it was dark black. And the tour guide told me that they used to have rock concerts in there. And I think it was Elton John had a rock concert in there a couple of years before I was there. And the booming of the amplifiers cause structural damage to the place and that is no more rock concerts in Paul's theater well I thought that was interesting this famous theater is being used for rock concerts but no longer and unfortunately I didn't go in there I looked at it through the gap into into it and I was too tired and I didn't go in I wish I had of but you know when you're traveling sometimes you cut corners but at any rate 
Everybody rushes into the amphitheater because that's where all the fun took place. And they dragged along Gaius and Aristarchus, two of Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. They didn't get Paul. Paul apparently was not there at the time. He was in, maybe he was indoors somewhere. They just missed him. But they got two of his traveling companions. They were from Macedonians. Let's start with Gaius. Well, I'm going to call him Gaius the Macedonian because there are four different Gaiuses in the New Testament. There's Gaius of Carth. There's Gaius of Macedonia. This one. There's Gaius of Derby, who Paul picked up on the first journey. Excuse me who Paul mentions as traveling with him on the third journey. And then we've got Gaius, John the Apostle's friend, who John addresses in his third epistle. So there's not enough evidence to know who is who. I'm just going to assume they're four different people. And then there is Aristarchus. Now we know a little bit more about Aristarchus. He was from Thessalonica. We know that in Acts 20, verse 3 and 4. This is when he went back from Corinth, back on his return trip through Macedonia, on his way back through Troas, back down to Miletus to take ship to to Jerusalem. He is accompanied on the way back by a lot of people, one of whom is, two of whom are Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica in Acts 20, verse 4. Now, after Aristarchus got on the ship with Paul and went back to Tyre, Went back, and then when they went down to Jerusalem, Aristarchus was still with him because in Acts 27, 1 through 2, we read this. When it was decided that we sailed to Italy, that's Paul under Roman guard, they handed over Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion named Julius of the Imperial Regiment. So when we had boarded a ship of Adramidium, we put to sea, intending to sail to ports along the coast of Asia. Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, was with us, along with Luke. And that's the us, there was Aristarchus. So Aristarchus was a faithful companion of Paul. And when they got to Rome, Paul writes a letter to the Colossians in prison, one of the prison epistles, it says this, Colossians 4.10, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you as does Mark. So somehow Aristarchus managed to get himself arrested. So this is the same Aristarchus who got in front of that mob in Ephesus. Now, why were they dragged into the amphitheater? Well, that amphitheater was used for public plays in honor of Diana. There were also wild beast fights, kind of like a Roman gladiatorial spectacle. John Gill speculates that the intention of the mob was probably to throw them to wild beasts, that there was a wild beast show going on, and we're going to take them in there and get them ripped up. Beast fighting with beast, sort of similar to an NFL football game. That's how the Ephesians amused themselves in their leisure. Well, that's speculation, of course. Speculation is driven by a verse later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 32. Paul says this, If I fought wild animals in Ephesus with only human hope, if I fought wild animals in Ephesus and so the speculation, and of course this is controverted like crazy, but the speculation is Paul could have actually been eventually thrown into that arena with wild beasts. He wasn't present at this time, but later on he might have been. Oh, that's all interesting speculation. Who knows? Doesn't really matter. We go to verse 13 of Acts 19. Though Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Of course, Paul had heard the commotion by now wherever he was, and he wanted to go in to rescue Gaius and Aris, Gaius and Secundus. But the disciples did not let him. Now, this is interesting. Paul probably said, oh, this is a good chance I can go in to preach the gospel. Well, he might have been thinking about that. He might have been just trying to, to rescue Gaius and Secundus. Some people say, like Jameson Fawcett and Brown, that Paul was very noble and heroic to risk his life, to attempt to risk his life by going in there. Other people say he was foolish and impetuous. 
Well, I don't know about that. I'm not going to criticize Paul for, if I have a choice, I'm going to say he's noble and brave because he was a brave man. He was, And you very rarely find him doing anything foolish, if, if at all, that I can think of. The disciples did not let him. Now, these disciples probably saved Paul's life. Then this is an example of how workers working together can have very good results. It's nice. It doesn't always happen that apostles have teammates, team workers to help them out, because sometimes they end up alone, like Paul ended up alone at, Corinth, at Athens and Corinth. But if, they had, if he hadn't had his fellow workers with him, his, or his fellow disciples at least, I mean, they might have been local Ephesian disciples, but if he hadn't had those guys with him, he'd be a dead man. Well, perhaps that's a little strong. He might not have been dead because he could have been a dead man. It turns out the local Ephesian officials calmed down the mob by threatening them with the authority of the Roman government. But, you know, it could have been bad. But they kept him out to, to save, save him. Now, you wonder, you notice that Paul did not exercise his quote-unquote apostolic authority and ordered them to his disciples to let him go i'm the boss here i'm the apostle let me go into the arena that didn't happen it reminds me like at the battle of uh the battle of the wilderness in the american war between the states the confederate soldiers yelled at robert e lee when he was at the front of the action lee to the rear lee to the rear they didn't want their general to get cut down in battle likewise paul's disciples didn't want him to get cut down because he was their leader so one wonders did they persuade paul not to go into the amphitheater or did they restrain paul from going in the verb is they did not let him i suspect they actually physically restrained him from going in that's my speculation we go to acts 19 verse 31 even some of the provincial officials of asia who were his friends who were paul's friends sent word to him sent word to paul pleading with him not to take a chance but going into the amphitheater so there's a lot of people thought it was stupid for paul to go in there he might have gotten killed including high provincial officials these are these are, the Greek is Asia Khan, leader of Asia. NIV Study Bible points that. NIV Study Bible and Adam Clark say that these, was, these guys were members of a council of men of wealth and influence. They were elected locally in Ephesus to promote the worship of the emperor. They were not secular rulers of provinces and cities, according to John Gill. And John Gill and Adam Clark say they were rather priests who presided over games and theaters. They were from the citizens, of the citizens of the principal provinces of the Asian towns. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, they were chosen annually. Ten of those who were chosen annually were chosen by the Roman proconsul for games that were celebrated in May. They had control over the wild beasts of the game, these Asiarchs, these city officials. And so that's another reason why some people speculate that there was a beast fight going in there and that the Christians and Paul later on was thrown was having to fight those wild beasts. This is something I don't believe. I just mentioned that because a lot of people have speculated that. But this fact that some of the provincial officials tried to help their friend Paul shows that Paul had made friends in high places. Now, whether they were converted or not, John Gill says probably not, because if they had been, they would have resigned from the council, the council that's in charge of having wild beast fights. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But at any rate, Paul had made friends with big shots, and that just goes to show there ain't nothing wrong with doing that. The gospel is for the poor and the oppressed people. The poor and oppressed people all throughout history have been converted to Christ, but so have big shots. And Paul had obviously been trying to witness to big shots in Ephesus. We go to Acts 19, verse 32. 
Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Well, isn't that just like a mob? Mob violence is totally irrational. They didn't know anything about Demetrius or the fact that Paul was threatening the trade of the silversmiths and was threatening the honor of the temple of Diana. We go to verse 33 in Acts 19. Then some of the crowd gave Alexander advice when the Jews pushed him to the front. So motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. Now this is really strange because nobody knows who Alexander was, as the commentator Alfred Barnes points out. So let's speculate a little bit, get some background on him. Adam Gill points out that his name is Greek, but we know he's a Jew in verse 34. Our next verse, Luke will tell us he's a Jew with a Greek name. This is because of Alexander the Great. He had visited Jerusalem on his great journey east to beat the Persians. And so a lot of Jews named their kids Alexander because Alexander went into Jerusalem. It was very nice to him. They had a, it's very famous if you ever read the story. The Jews were favor, favorably disposed toward Alexander. So he was a Jew named Alexander. He was probably chosen to speak because he was an able speaker. And that makes sense. That's Adam Clark's speculation. Now, Adam Clark claims that it is generally believed he was Alexander the coppersmith who was a heretic. I don't believe this. Jameson Fawcett and Brown disagrees with Clark and says, there's little evidence to say it was Alexander the coppersmith. Well, who is this Alexander the coppersmith? Well, he was a Hymenean heretic. 1 Timothy 1.20. Hymenaeus and Alexander are among them. There's Alexander. He's friends with Hymenaeus. And these are the two famous guys who said the resurrection had already occurred. And Paul says they're blasphemous. They're, they're like gangrene. They're spreading like gangrene. They're bad people. I have sort of a fond remembrance of Alexander because I got involved in some neo-Hymenaean heretics, hyperpreterous heretics, who deny the resurrection of the dead, just like Alexander and Hymenaeus did back in Paul's time. And they are some nasty folks. Not all of them, but a lot of them are really nasty because they did some nasty stuff to me. And Paul says, I've delivered them to Satan, so they may be taught not to blaspheme. Well, now, this is serious business. Second Timothy 2.14, Paul mentions this same Alexander. Alexander the coppersmith did great harm to me. The Lord will repay him according to his works. So, I don't believe that somebody that horrendous would be in there trying to defend the Christians at all. I think he was a Jew. Well, I know he's a Jew because it says that in verse 34. And it says in verse 34, the Jew, well, it says in verse 33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front. So it makes sense that a Jew, that the Jews were pushing a fellow Jew to the front to speak. Now, the next question is, is why? What would their motives be? Well, here are three speculations from my NIV study Bible. Number one, the Jews wanted to make clear the disassociation of Jews from the Christians. Adam Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown take this tack. After all, Jews were monotheists. They didn't believe in polygamy. They certainly did not believe in the pagan Artemis. And so it would be logical to charge them with the same thing that the Christians had gotten charged of, charged with, trashing the great name of the many-breasted Diana. And the Jews were especially sensitive to charge of riots by the Romans because, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, the Romans thought they, the Jews, were the authors of all religious disturbances. You remember Claudius kicked them out in the early 50s. They, they came back to Rome in 54, but before that he kicked all the Jews out of Rome. That's why Priscilla and Aquila ended up in Corinth instead of Rome. So the Jews were just defending themselves against the charge of, a, of being anti-Artemis. Probably that's the first speculation. The second speculation from the NIV Study Bible is that the Jews maybe wanted to accuse the Christians of further offenses. 
Maybe they, maybe Alexander will want to get up and say, it wasn't us Jews, but it's these nasty Christians that are saying bad things about Artemis. Here's a third option, an option which I do not believe. This is not the NIV study Bible. This is John Gill. He says that maybe Alexander was a Jew who had gotten converted to Christianity, and he wanted to get up and defend the Christians and stop the riot so they wouldn't get hurt. Gill says that Alexander was a Christian, or at least he was charged with being a Christian. I, I don't believe that. I believe he was a Jewish guy that was trying to protect Jews from charges of anti-pagan activity. If he was, now if Alexander was Jewish, and if he, in addition to defending the Jews, went on the attack against Christians, and this would be one more example of the implacable hatred Jews had for Christians at this time, just as Jesus has predicted, they will chase you from synagogue to synagogue and kill you. Although we, I don't know that. I don't know if, Jew, if Alexander went after the Christians. My best guess is that he was just trying to protect the Jews there in Ephesus against false charges of being anti-Diana. Now, Alexander motioned with his hand. He was probably saying, hey, guys, shut up. Remember, there's a bunch of noise going on, a bunch of confusion, a bunch of shouting. He motions to his hands to shut up so he could talk. Now, he failed to get them to be quiet. As we read in verse 34, as soon as they saw that that. Alexander was a Jew. They started screaming and hollering, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. So he didn't get them to shut up, but he tried. He motioned with his hand. Now it says some of the crowd gave Alexander advice when the Jews pushed him to the front. Now that's kind of interesting. The NIV says shouted instructions. And this is not the Jews, probably, but the crowd that he was going to be, that Alexander was going to be speaking to. What kind of instructions would a crowd be shouting out to Alexander? This is my speculation. They might have been saying, Go ahead and speak. We'll shut up. Go ahead and speak. We go to verse 34 in Acts 19. But when they, this is the crowd in the amphitheater, when they recognized that he, Alexander, was a Jew, a united cry went up from all of them for about two hours. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. Just look at a Jew and go crazy. Well, because the Jews were noted for being monotheist, and that's likely that a Jew would be against the temple at Diana, even though, of course, I'm sure the Jews kept quiet about their opposition to Diana and didn't cause any stink. Well, now the mob has gone crazy. They didn't give a Jew a chance of defending his monotheism, and they didn't give the Jew a chance to say, even though I'm a monotheist, I have never said anything bad about Diana. We go to verse 35 in Acts 19. However, when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, the city clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Now, who was this city clerk? NIV Study Bible says he was the secretary of the city who published the decisions of the civic assembly. He was a local guy, in other words. He was not a Roman official. He was an Ephesian official. He was the most important local official. He was the chief executive officer of the assembly, which met three times a month, by the way. He was a go-between for Ephesus and the Roman authorities. And the Ephesians were the temple guardian. There was 13 cities in the area that had a some kind of an interest in the temple, but Ephesus was honored with the charge of the temple and keeping, keeping care of it. And the clerk appeals to the fact that the image of Artemis had fallen from heaven. Now, that's kind of a strange thing to say. Some people speculate, such as the NIV Study Bible, that perhaps a meteor fell and was honored as an image of Artemis. Well, that's reasonable. But Barnes, I think, has a better speculation. The idol was so ancient, Diana, was so ancient that the maker of that idol was unknown. And so it was deemed to have fallen from heaven, and it was the, in the interest of the priest to maintain this fiction, says Barnes. And I'm saying that, and I'm saying the reason that they would want to maintain the fiction is because it makes Artemis seem more mysterious and holy. 
lost in the smoky mist of antiquity. She fell from heaven. But anyway, the clerk appeals to their, to the crowd's pagan religious sentiments. And I guess he's, what he's trying to say is, hey, I'm, I understand how you, you're concerned about protecting Diana's image. I'm with you on that. However, and of course the however was what is important. We go to verse 19, verse 36. The clerk continues. Therefore, since these things are undeniable, oh, really, undeniable that Artemis fell from heaven? Well, it was undeniable in the superstitious eyes of the Ephesians. Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and do not do anything rash. In other words, hey, Gaius and Secundus are not going, excuse me, Gaius and Aristarchus, are not going to destroy the temple at Diana. She came from heaven. She came from heaven. You think these two guys are going to destroy the temple of Diana? Don't do anything rash here. What kind of rash? They will start a riot because Romans don't like riots. They come in and do some nasty things to cities that start riots. So don't do anything rash. Here's what Jameson Fawcett Brown says, basically what I just said. Since Ephesus was the guardian of the temple and Artemis is great, there's nothing to worry about. Nothing that any man could say that would contradict the dignity and power of Artemis. Certainly not a set of itinerant orators, Gaius and Aristarchus. Since Ephesus had a fixed and stable constitution and character, there was nothing to worry about. The city clerk is telling the crowd. And the city clerk continues, For you have brought, you the, the mob, have brought these men, Gaius and, Gaius and Aristarchus, you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. Now what the clerk is saying here is, you can't prove they stole anything from the temple of Diana. Temple robbers were considered to be ex, especially sacrilegious in the pagan world. In fact, Cyrus the Great, that great Cyrus the Great, the great ecumenated Persian ruler, he got killed robbing a temple out in the east of his kingdom. That's how he died. Temple robbers are considered bad people because people would store their gold cities and, and governments would store their gold in temples because they were considered sacrosanct places and people wouldn't rob their gold there. But sometimes people would do it and they were considered especially evil. It's kind of like murder is murder, but if you kill a policeman, a cop killer is considered a worse murder than a normal murderer. And the clerk there says, uh-uh, these guys never robbed. They're not temple robbers. They didn't rob Diana's temple, and they didn't blaspheme Diana. They never said anything bad about Diana, Artemis. Now, that's interesting because that shows that the apostles there, the disciples in Ephesus, were very careful not to slander Artemis's name. They studiously avoided insulting local feelings, as the Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. You know, the, the apostles were brave, but they weren't stupid. They weren't rash. There's no point in going around trashing. That's like going to a Muslim. You want to witness to him, and you say, you know, that darn Muhammad, he had sex with a nine-year-old girl. What a pervert. What a pedophile. You do something like that, you know, the Muslim ain't going to listen to you. You've got to be nice to people. So... The, apparently, the apostles here were very nice. They had not said anything bad about the goddess, and that stood them in good stead because the local city official there stood up for them and said, look, they haven't done anything, so lay off. Stop your riot. This is a very good lesson for missionaries working cross-culture. I mean, when I was in China, I was in China for roughly 23 years. I, you're not going to hear me talk about pa Mao Zedong was a, a mass murderer. Now, every now and then, if I knew somebody real good, and you know, I, I might kind of hint at it, but I knew that and every now and then, I would just to get some students riled up, I'd say, oh, so you don't think Taiwan's a country, huh? You think it belongs to China, huh? Well, how come, what kind of a place? I said, I said, does Taiwan have its own currency, its own police force, its own parliament, its own flag, its own traditions? Doesn't that sound like a country to you? 
and they would look at me with blank faces because they've been brainwashed to think Taiwan is part of China. So, but I, but you know, that was rare. I, I would that, and I would not. I would never do it while I was witnessing. If I was just talking in class about something, you know. But and that's after I've been there for twenty years. <laughs> when I was first there, I didn't say a word about Mao Zedong being a mass murderer I didn't, or the the Great Leap Forward killing thirty eight million people. I just kind of kept quiet about that because my goal was not to get people riled up. My goal was to try to get people saved. Big difference. We go to verse thirty eight of Acts chapter nineteen. The city clerk continues, speaking to the mob in the Ephesian amphitheater. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. In other words, you've got legal recourse. recourse. You have courts and you have judges. The proconsuls would act like as a judge. Let them bring charges against one another. Of course, a proconsul is the, word, is the head of a Roman province. Ephesus, of course, was the head of the province of Asia, and so the proconsul would be there. There's not but one. The reason that there, it mentions courts and proconsuls is talking about it in general. We have courts here. We have proconsuls. Proconsuls exist. In general, doesn't mean there was more than, more than one proconsul in Ephesus. And so the city clerk says, look, you got a financial beef against these guys. You can sue. You don't need to do it in a riot. Acts 19, verses 39 through 41 but if you want something else, it must be decided in a legal assembly, i.e. not in a mob. The legal assembly was a civil meeting that met three times a month, usually, according to the NIV Study Bible. And, of course, the implication here is that this was not a legal assembly. And if you want something else besides suing Secundus and, not Secundus, I'm sorry, Aristarchus and Gaius, if you want to sue them for financial reasons, well, you could do that, or for anything else, for example, blaspheming Diana's name, take it to court. Don't do it in a mob. Adam Clark, oh, excuse me, in verse 40 says this, in fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting. The we is the public authorities. Being charged with rioting? Ooh. The Roman law made it a capital offense against anyone who started a riot, as Adam Clark said. Now, the mere mention of rioting must have made Demetrius become afraid for his life, as Adam Clark said. Because he couldn't prove anything against the Christians. And so what that city clerk is saying, hey, you want to risk your life? The Romans come in here and execute you for starting a riot? When you don't have any proof against these apostles, maybe you better lay off. Kind of reminds me of these Democrats are trying to impeach Trump with no evidence. And now a lot of Democrats are peeling off as I speak. They say, well, you know, maybe we ought not to do this. They acted like a mob at first. We got him. We got him. We're going to kick that SOB out of the White House. And now, oh, my gosh, we don't have any evidence. And people are turning against us. Maybe we just ought to do a censure instead. I don't know how this is going to turn out. Maybe if you're listening to this audio 20 years from now, you will have some perspective on current events. At any rate, I am finished with Acts chapter 19. We'll take up Acts chapter 20 as Paul goes through Macedonia, heads to Corinth, and then returns back to Macedonia, down to Miletus, and back to Jerusalem. Hope you stay tuned for Acts chapter 20. I hope you enjoyed this audio.